Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Hey, everybody, you are now tuned in to the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast, where we talk about all things related to Black culture, mental health, and our faith. It is Black History Month. We're continuing to tell our stories, and I have none other than historian Chief, I don't want to say your name incorrectly. Amushan. Amushan. Chief yes. Amushan. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, I certainly appreciate you being here all the way from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I first met you when uh, Forbes the Culture had taken us to Tulsa and we had learned so much about the massacres that had occurred, the entrepreneurs and the businesses that were impacted and the legacy that it has impacted, that has uh, impacted the trajectory of how we do business even today in the black community, in our um you know, experience of being black. Um, so we're definitely going to talk about the, that today and how we continue to experience the legacy of that. Uh, so I, I want to get right into it. So first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, yeah, all the amazing work that you're doing? Yeah. So um, I do so little talking about myself <laughs> and talking about everybody else. It's freezing how it goes, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I it really I'm an advocate for uh, historic justice, um, reparations advocate. You know, I work with the uh, Reparation Commission. I work with John Conyers from Congressman John, former uh, John Congressman John Conyers for years mm-hmm. uh, with some of the legislation he tried to push was HR 40, which is still you know uh, being sent before Congress through Cory Booker right now. And so uh, that's been that's been a real passion. For for me, you know, uh, historic justice and making sure that the survivors uh, got justice while they lived. Uh, I'm a descendant of three massacre survivors, uh, owner of the Real Black Wall Street Tour Company, president of the African Ancestral Society that has, we really turned this into a, a annual holiday. We created, we said, you know what, why come black people don't have our own holidays? And so every Memorial Day, we would have this commemoration and honor survivors and descendants of you know this experience because it's not just about the massacre; it's about the we're the, we're also the descendants of people who built something extraordinary, and so that's been a big part of my you know my work and my passion. Yeah, I love that. I think what you're doing is so important uh, because there is a, a direct attack on African American history and what we know and what we learn about our history. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think there's way I think there's ways to counter that. You know. Uh, with this critical race theory ban, I did a, a panel discussion for the CFO of AT&T and HBO in Dallas. And it was really interesting because the CFO wanted me to talk about what you just mentioned. And, you know, I tend to think in terms of if there is a problem, what is the potential solution? Right. What's the tangible solution? That's that's I, I won't even go into a space <laughs> if I can't experience a tangible solution, because otherwise you just elevate my blood pressure. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, it was this, you know, I said, listen, this is what could happen. What if black and brown children said, you know what? I don't think we should talk about the Constitution and the founding fathers and the Pledge of Allegiance because I'm a descendant of enslaved people and those people enslaved our ancestors. You know, there are so many measures that could be a counter to the whole idea, the whole premise of critical race theory. We could obliterate it. Like, what would you even teach in school? Whose name would you even mention, (laughs) you know, that hasn't been a participant in a system of white supremacy, Mm -hmm. you know? I think having like, you know, your voice at those those tables is so necessary because Mm -hmm. I can say like a lot of people probably haven't even thought of that solution. 
Yeah. Like just pushing back. <laughs> right. Like it's the major. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, but that would be so powerful though. It would. Now, it, like if y'all don't want to teach us our history, I don't want to learn about. That's yours. right. <laughs> like, I mean, it is what it is. And we got all the evidence, you know, so right. it's not like, yeah, you teach it every day <laughs> just from your perspective. Oh my goodness. So you, you said you, you're the descendant of three uh, survivors. Yes. Of the Tulsa massacre. Can you can you tell us a bit about that, your experience and what you've learned from uh, the survivors of, of this massacre? Absolutely. Um, so brace yourself. <laughs> um, it was 2000. No, it was 97 when I first actually heard about Black Wall Street. I knew about Greenwood, but I didn't know about Black Wall Street. Um, and when I left high school, I went to Atlanta. But, you know, I mean, all my classmates were like, we got to get out of Oklahoma. The best thing we got going on here is Juneteenth and rodeos. You know, it was like that. That's the ignorance of not knowing your past. And so we left. And so I went to Atlanta, was blown away and said, hey, we can do this in Tulsa. And when I got back, people were like, that's nothing original, you know. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I haven't seen whatever you're talking about. And, um, you know, just to get to your question, I took some of that to my own my own family, you know, and they were like, yeah, we done some things like that before, you know, but it was still like. Why did nobody ever talk about this? Yeah. So 2001, fast forward, 2001, I was at uh, the Greenwood Culture Center and I was doing security for Johnny Cochran. And him and Charles Ogletree were the attorneys that had filed the lawsuit for reparations. And my grandfather was part of that lawsuit. However, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so I'm at this meeting and 50 survivors in this building. And I asked my granddad. I said, hey, what are you doing here? It's good to see you here. You know, finally, family of, in participation, you know, feeling really good about it. And he he said, have a seat. And he said, I sat down next to him. He said, you know, our family survived the massacre. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. My my whole being stepped out of me. <laughs> like I, my physical body sat down, my spiritual body sat down. I was like, yeah, this yes. is unbelievable. Why is it I don't know about this? You know, so he was like, yeah, you know, your great uncle and your great aunt and myself survived the massacre. They were my surrogate parents because your great grandmother was ill when she gave birth to me. And that's how I ended up in Greenwood. And I was like, this is like insane. You know how long I've been talking about this? You know, so to find that out was extremely devastating. It was even more devastating that, you know, back then we didn't use words like trauma, (laughs) you know, and things like that. It was just the past is the past. My grandfather had a saying, no news is good news. So if you wasn't hearing bad, let it go, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was the journey. That was the beginning of the discovery of my connection to the massacre, my family's connection. And it led me on a huge journey of discovery, you know, and I'm asking all these questions because again, I wasn't, I wasn't cognizant of the, how trauma affected group, collective groups and individuals and to think that 250 people in this space were all children so i'm actually witnessing the story of children who are opening up their wounds of the past hoping that they will be taken seriously and so i me being ignorant to trauma i had a million questions you know and i'm asking these people who are children basically and i wasn't even considerate of the fact that i'm asking children to talk about something that's very painful yeah that had been suppressed for uh, over about a century. Um, so that was the beginning, you know, and it was like this level of pr- this intense pride swelled up in me that was like, okay, I'm on a journey of rediscovery, reclamation, uh, you know, like every form of justice that can be made, it needs to be meted out. Uh, unfortunately, they went to the Supreme court in 2005 after this so Oklahoma state courts denied them on the grounds of statute of limitations. So they took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, we can't even get a quorum because the statute of limitations has passed. You have a valid case. You have all the evidence you need to, to talk about who's culpable, all of that. So, you know, moving forward, John Conyers introduced another bill to try to circumnavigate the statute of limitations. But it was also it was it was destroyed, you know, because there was so much political activity to get immunity in Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma so that they didn't have to worry about it. And so I guess later in the conversation, we'll talk about where that goes. <laughs> yeah, like and, yeah. And, I mean, we, if you feel the, the spirit leading you there, yeah. then we can go now. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, 
you, you, oh my gosh, so many things I want to dig into. Like, <laughs> okay, so you talked about like how they they try to kind of like surpass these certain laws in order to not give justice to the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. And I'm yeah. also we're going to talk about why we're calling it the Tulsa race massacre as the as opposed to the Tulsa race riot too, because you right. taught me that while we were in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you talked about how they surpassed that. And you said one of the things that has happened is, you know, insurance companies, they they tried not to reckon with this past because they haven't they don't want to pay out like the trillions and the, the millions and trillions of dollars that are owed to these people. Right. Which has allowed many insurance companies. And I forgot the ones that you named to, to benefit today. Yeah. Off yeah. Of the massacre. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, egregious to yeah. think about that. And you think about terminology. That's why, you know, us, we need to understand the power of words and the power of English and how we get manipulated through those words, you know, because we tend to attach them to feelings and not definitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there are very. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Be aware of that. So this thing like with the massacre, one of the reasons it's even called the massacre now is because people like myself and other advocates, historic justice advocates, we would go to every lecture, every book signing, every film release. And if there was somebody using the word riot, oh, it's going to be very unfortunate for you because <laughs> we're going to make it uncomfortable. And that that that's what resulted in all these local institutions changing the terminology to from riot to massacre. I was like, I don't care if you call it a, a pogrom, a holocaust, a massacre whatever ethnic expulsion, because they all fit by definition, they all fit. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what would, for the listeners, like, what would you say is the difference between calling it the Tulsa race massacre versus the race riot? Well, the difference is it's like saying, you know, I went just using an example, went to mm-hmm. a book signing and the sponsors were a, a, the Jewish of the Jewish community. And so I stood up and I they said, you had any questions? You know, I said, I got a question. And it's really not even for the <laughs> for the author. It's for the audience. Can you imagine me saying that the Jewish Holocaust was a uh, a domestic attack? Now, think about how that marginalized dy- dynamically <laughs> the experience of the Jewish Holocaust. So I just called that whole event a domestic attack. The fact that you could how could you even utilize that in a court of law and what would be the what would be the outcome? It wouldn't be what it is today for the Jewish community. You certainly wouldn't get reparations as a result of it. So why would you call the Tulsa massacre, this 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 event, this atrocious terrorist attack on U.S. soil? Why would you call it anything less than what it is? And it was strictly to protect property, right, and resources. So it's like you haven't taken enough. <laughs> you know, people can't recover their money because if you didn't have a bank book, and your bank book was destroyed in the property, all of your cash, we don't even talk about that. That the, mm-hmm. All they ever talk about is property. What about the cash value? Because it wasn't like people had ATM cards. <laughs> you know, you had a bank book, and if your bank book was burned in the fire, you basically had no money. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot to impact. Oh, my gosh. The impact that that has had on so many families. Yeah. Um, and going back to what you were saying about, like you said, these were children. The the, the survivors yeah. today, of course, were children. So when I right. think about that, like, you know, when first learning about the massacre, I wasn't thinking like these were children being attacked. Yeah. When this was occurring. Like, it's just so mind blowing to think about. It is. 
It really is. And you think about the level of orphans and widows that were left behind. Yeah. It it the, it it just changes. It's it's just it's nothing short of remarkable that these people, those who did come back, came back. Those who rebuilt, rebuilt. It's nothing short of remarkable. It's it's probably one of the most um recent examples of you know, we talk about the recovery, how people, how New York recovered from the, the uh, Twin Towers. If we really told this story, it would be the it would be the greatest story never told mm. as it relates to humanity and the uh, just simple uh, resilience and recovery. You know, and I asked one of the survivors, a good friend of my grandparents, mind you, this is a funny part. The street my grandparents grew on, I mean, grew up on and owned their home. Everybody on the street almost were survivor massacre. I mean, massacre survivors. And wow. I grew up around them my whole life and never knew. So after the massacre, now I know all these people who are survivors. Well, one of them named is Wes Young. He said, uh, I asked him around after 2000, the Supreme Court situation. I said, so why would people even come back to this God awful place? And he says to me, he had these glazed looking eyes. He said, what could be worse than slavery? Man, when he said that, I was like, okay, checkmate. Let right. me sit down. That's that. You're right. You're absolutely right. What could be worse than slavery? Yeah. Yeah. So like when we think about, uh, you talked about like the, the individuals who are survivors and the people who you grew up near on some of the streets. Um, one of the things you taught us was that, you know, people incorrectly call it like, you know, Black Wall Street as if yeah. it's a street of business. Yes. Yes. Greenwood was something different. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, it's um, it's important to understand that because even historians, local historians and people who've written books tend to they tend to sensationalize the idea of this prosperous street, like a main street. You heard terminology like that. Um, and it's very marginalizing because it makes you think, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean to tell me that? You have this giant area that 15,000 people in it and everybody lives on one street. No, it's not possible. You had multiple main streets in Greenwood. Some of them even moved so close to downtown Tulsa that most people even locally aren't even aware. Right. And so because there are historic markers all over the city that many people are not even knowledgeable about. And so to think about Greenwood as being an area 40 blocks long and a mile wide in 1921. Mm -hmm. And to think about what community looked like, you know, and what that district looked like. Uh, I'm presenting a National Geographic project called the Real Black Wall Street Tour. It, it officially launches on February 18th. And what I did is I found video footage because I didn't want people to think, oh, you know, Black people are just romanticizing their history. Trust me, we have every right and every reason to romanticize with evidence. And that's usually the problem. We we philosophize about, you know, what, and fantasize about what our history looked like. But because our history was er erased, most people dismiss us, even if we had eyewitnesses. So you'll get to see this bustling community that looks like Beale Street, Bourbon Street, Chocolate City, New York, all in one place. And that's hard for us to imagine, yeah. you know, so you have to you can't look at it as a black Wall Street. You know, Booker T. Washington, when he coined it, Negro Wall Street was simply speaking. He was just trying to attest to the fact that these people are circulating money inside their community at a rate that that if you wrote your name on a dollar bill, it would stay in the community and be there for a whole year before it left. Wow. That is unimaginable. <laughs> You know, like imagine you opening your own clinic in Greenwood. Oh, my goodness. The perpetual, you're going to have a hospital eventually. You're going to have to have a major institution to accommodate the mm -hmm. state of Oklahoma. And you have this, and they trust you. They adore you. They love you. They want to see you succeed. To exist in a utopian experience like that, like that was literally our utopia. Yeah. That's different. And it's funny you mentioned, um, you know, if I were to open a, a clinic in, in Tulsa, when I was in Tulsa in the museum, I saw a black female, a black woman psychologist. Mm. Business was burned. 
in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it was amazing for me to think about because this was in an era where black psychologists, that wasn't even really a thing for real. Yeah. Like there were very few. And the fact right. that they thriving practices, psychologists in Tulsa. That's right. Like that That's really- right. Yeah, one of my favorite, one of my close friends, she passed away a few years back. Her name was Olivia Hooker. She was a survivor. She is a PhD. And that was her field as well. And she was six years old when the massacre occurred. She was one of the first women to join the Coast Guard. And I remember her saying, you know, she was extremely eloquent, I mean, eloquent, I mean, to the to her last days. Uh, she spoke before Congress. I mean, just really a magnificent soul. And I remember her saying she was very definitive in this discussion about the massacre. And she would say yet decades ago that that wasn't a riot. That was a massacre. She said, when the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard went to Israel and they were the, my officer, fellow officers asked me, why didn't you go into the uh, the Holocaust Museum? She said, because I've already been through one. Mm. And I was thinking, man, this one here. Wow. Yeah. Brilliant woman. Olivia, Dr. Olivia Hooker. OK, I'll definitely yeah. I'll definitely look into her information. Yeah. But it, the fact that we're even talking about. And like, you know, people who experienced this. And yeah. I think we have this this idea of things that have happened in history, such as the Tulsa race uh, massacre. We think like, oh, this was so long ago. Like right. this was this was so far. It's, it's our history when in actuality, this wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. And for people who are still living, it's current. You know, in 2021, I testified before Congress with the three living survivors and that was one of the things I mentioned to Congress. We don't have a past. We have compounded. Um, we have a compounded narrative, right, where there hasn't been a break in history where we can say, hey, remember the good old days when yes. remember back when, you know, where we can say historically we weren't facing some sort of oppression. Yes. You literally have to go between that time period of 1905 to. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. 1921. In Greenwood, we could say that. But that that's why it was necessary to erase the narrative. So it's mm -hmm. almost like taking a piece of your your psychological experience, your memory base and detach it, de deleting the whole file from your memory and then expecting you to pick up. In a, in a in a healthy state, but you know something is wrong. You sense it. Like, where did I get this ability to do so much from? How how do I have so much strength and so much resistance? Where does this come from? Yes. You know, yeah. And then you're thinking, okay, why do I have these other triggers too? What are these other hangups? It's generational. Yes, absolutely. Generational. <laughs> that's it. You know, you come to Tulsa. That's why you you meet people who who are real fighters because we still view, we don't view it as a past because it hasn't passed. Right. You know, we're still living in it. We're still living the experience. So. It's, it's literally just like one generation removed from it um, yeah. or two generations because my, you said it, it occurred in 19, in the 1920s. My grandfather was born in 1923. Like this, right. like. It, exactly. It, <laughs> right yeah. around the corner from us. Right. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about, you know, the massacre, uh, what caused the massacre for some of the people who might not understand or know why, like some of this happened. And some people believe that it was just like one thing that we experienced uh, when, in fact, you taught us that it was multiple massacres that had occurred. So if we yeah. can kind of get into that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to go back to 1918, uh, World War I and the veterans who went off to World War One and they went back, you know, they went to war with uh, that that Southern mentality, you know, where you're on code. You don't look white folks in the eye. You don't stand in proximity. You know, all of those rules, those in inherent rules that like we teach our kids today about interactions with the police. The same thing. We had this cultural. We, it was like how to interact with white people. Yeah. Forget a, a department or an institution. And so those people went to war and they weren't allowed to fight with white soldiers. So they sent them to the French side. And when they went to the French side, the French treated them as if they didn't even I, they didn't even recognize that they were black. So 
it explained the high population increase in Paris of black people. Like we brought culture to Paris, Mm -hmm. to France. We -hmm. brought serious culture to France. Well, those men who came back though, that code that they left with, it was gone. Right. So this idea of (laughs) I'm a nigga or I'm this or that, they were like, no, I don't classify as any of those things. I, in fact, identify as an American, as an American patriot. And whether you like it or not, the only reason you exist is because I made an oath. I upheld the oath. I fight for the oath and I will fight again for the oath domestically or uh, internationally. And that. I can't that degree of pride. Yeah. Like what? Say something. Right. <laughs> right. And so uh, it, it created a dynamic in the United States that was um, that increased that heightened the idea of terrorism against black people, because the idea that you now think you're better than me, the idea that you not only think it, you act on it. Right. It's not just you, you isolated in your black community and you don't express your your dignity and pride. And that extends to their families. And black people came back and said, listen, we have to defend our communities against this local terrorism. And uh, white people understood that white society understood that. And there were over 35 riots. And I can call these riots uh, because that's exactly what the, what occurred uh, in these different cities that eventually became, that's how they're identified but there were actually 35 massacres in the United States from Harlem to St. Louis, to Lane, Arkansas, to Louisiana. They were all over the nation to try to put black people back in their place. And what it did is it created a, a militia movement known as the African Blood Brotherhood, where they set up, which was organized in New York City and it spread across the nation. And Du Bois, people like W.E.B. Du Bois were telling people, listen, you better pick up the arm. If you're going to have create and develop a community and, and you want it to be sustainable, you need to also be able to protect it. And so that's what eventually led up to this heightened sensitivity and the idea of who do these people think they are? Right. But we they couldn't marginalize us to say we're this <laughs> we're this violent group of people right. because we were building institutions we, the, the the degree of what we what we were creating throughout this nation and across the United States, we haven't repeated that yet. We haven't rebuilt that. It's it's a, it's legacy. It's memory for us, right? And so, it, the idea that there's this rebirth, you know, everything comes three sixty, three full, you know, everything that comes around, it comes back around. Mm-hmm. So um, the things that led up to the massacre, truthfully, are not quite what people think it is. And so people tend to think the narrative is in, uh, in 1921, May 30th, an interaction between a white girl and a black boy who was a shoe shine boy. She was an elevator operator. That is the and, and him uh, being accused of raping Sarah Page, which is her name. The black kid is Dick Rowland. That's the normal excuse that's given for why the massacre happened. What people don't know is that um, you're getting the first to get this information. (laughs) Um, What people people don't know is you have to go back a year before the massacre because in 19, or actually two years, 1919, uh, A.J. Stratford, J.B. Stratford actually prevented a lynching in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Very few people know about this. Well, that left a sentiment. These people are getting... It's too much that they, they think they're everything and they're becoming everything in the oil capital of the world. So now you go another year forward. It's 1920. Black people are now gaining political uh, awareness and insight and actually strategizing on how to get political influence. They already have economic influence, mm-hmm. but even to date in 2023, we are still politically oppressed. Like they'll let you have money. They'll let you do build community. They'll let you do whatever you want to do. But one thing you cannot have collectively is political power. You have to subscribe to one party or, the, or another. And even when you do that, it's still not necessarily about us empowering you. It's about us controlling the vote narrative and controlling who mm-hmm. you think is, is your ally, your supporter. Well, black people then didn't have an allegiance to a party. They had an allegiance to whoever 
met their agenda. Well, that was starting to become an issue in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow. So it wasn't about jealousy. It wasn't just about greed. It wasn't just about those simple, what we consider, just think about it. The reason they can hold that narrative is because they, they told us that a mob destroyed Greenwood, that it was vigilantes, vigilantism. No, it wasn't. It was the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma that destroyed Greenwood. That's a different dynamic. That's a huge difference. Yes, because why would you why would you need to why would the military show up as a result of envy and greed or jealousy? You know how trivial that is? You can't even get a government, you can't get a governor to sign off on having the state military push an operation <laughs> over jealousy and greed. It has to be about destruction of life and destruction of property, because those are the only two things that actually matter to white society. So we haven't been, it, it, it makes me understand why th- this wasn't taught to us in school, because we would have been thinking just like I'm thinking now. There would have been a, some kid in class or some professor saying, wait a minute, something just doesn't add up here. <laughs> right. And it doesn't. Yeah. So those are the things we re- it, it's so much. It, and I, yeah, yeah. It's a lot to process. Yeah, it is. Because even <laughs> in adulthood, because we like like you said, we didn't learn about this in school. Um, in my adulthood of learning about this, my what I recall people um, teaching is that this happened as a result of like the jealousy or even, you know, starting with the um, young man, like, you know, whistling at somebody or what have you. Yeah. I had no idea about the, the change in the political power, which makes sense if black people were running things in Greenwood. That's right. Like, so, so with the <laughs> power that black people had, that we weren't supposed to have in the first place, or they don't think that we were supposed to have in the first place. There, how do you get that power back? Of course, resources. That's right. Resources. You take their. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Now you're talking the language. Resources. It is always about resources and limiting collective power. Because remember, Greenwood wasn't built on capitalism; was built on cooperative. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Economics. Yeah, that meant that you built, you literally built a self-sustaining mechanism, right? Capitalism can spin, spin around one time and you might be wealthy this year and broke the next. But when you have cooperative economics, You create a cycle of energy where you continue to recycle, just like the dollar circulating 50 times in a community. That meant you had a system of sustainability where you're saying, reach one, teach one, spin here, spin there, but no, but not everywhere. You keep that money inside your community. You, you reinforce your ideas, your ideologies, your, your, everything has to be built on the premise of how do we sustain what we have? Right. How do we sustain this? Because it's not about us. It's about how I see my children, how I see my grandchildren. And am I creating a plan where they are part of it? I'm not just working my whole life to develop a plan that they might they might not invest in in 10, 20 years. I'm developing a plan that they are uniquely a part of, like my business. My business is family owned, self-sustaining, and it doesn't require any support from anybody outside of itself. Because the idea is, how do I, how do we create legacies? How do we, how do we build a dynamic, a force that becomes like we honor, we recognize, and even somewhat idolize, like Fords, Rockefellers, uh, Zaros, uh, 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 Kaisers. You know, like you hear all these family names, and they got family foundations, right? Because the principle is built on how do we elevate. The family, which elevates the community, which elevates the whole society that we create. You know, so they have it down pat. <laughs> the blueprint, like you have that, it became necessary to destroy the blueprint. That's mm-hmm. why I said when I went to Atlanta, came back to Oklahoma, it was like, okay, everybody's saying this is not new. What do you tell me? What I don't know then? And it's because they are they remembered the blueprint, but it was like. 
even having the blueprint, if we don't figure out a way to sustain it, right? Like a good idea that dissipates. You want that thing to sustain itself. That's why I plant seeds. That's why my tour is not cookie cutter. My cookie cut, my tour is, it is designed specifically for the people who are in the tour. What you would, my job is just to provoke thought, right? I want to provoke enough thought for you to walk away from the tour saying, hmm, that just gave me some really powerful ideas. Okay, then my job is done because I planted a tree. Eventually the tree becomes a forest. Everything we do has to be built on that premise. You're right. like it's like it's like the work you do, for example, and you think about how do I make sure that every moment that I have with these individuals or this group has a long term um, benefit. Right. I need to know that when you leave this space, you're equipped with the tools to become better than you were when you came into the room. Mm-hmm. Then I sleep at night. You might sleep better tonight, right? And life goes on. That's what we hope for, yeah. right? It's just, it's like I, you have to just provoke thought. You got to. It's like waking us up from hypnosis, and I have to use keywords and phrases to help you to help you get out of a cycle of thought that is erroneous. Like, oh man, why didn't I think of this? Like that yes. happens to me all the time. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. having those moments even right now. <laughs> I, I totally get it. Um, <laughs> even, even going back to that point of like capitalism versus cooperative economics. Economics, yeah. In our generation, I can say there are a lot of people who may not fully understand what capitalism entails. Therefore, mm. they adopt that notion like, oh, I'm a capitalist or I, yes. you know, I believe in, you know, I'm going to make money, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And I, I believe they're like, as Black people, we deserve wealth. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. How can we get back to that place of prioritizing community and still being able to, you know, secure the bag yeah, yeah. <laughs> while also, you know, operating from this sense of cooperative, uh, what you call it? What's the call? Economics, again? cooperative economics, economics. CE. Economics. Yeah. Word. <laughs> Era <laughs> CE. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even, even with what you just said, you know, um, I did a, I did. I was a keynote speaker at this event in Dallas and we were talking about the sister has this idea about taking the whole beauty industry and pulling everybody in the beauty industry together to control the whole industry, right? From distribution to the salon, right? And, and health and including health is part of all of that. So, my opening thing was, why is it we can't get to cooperative economics? It's primarily because we're being in real time conditioned to chase the bag. Huh. The bag means you're an individual taking a bag, but nobody's chasing the bank. Mm. You have to chase the bank, not the bag. In order to chase the bank, you have to be collective, cooperative economics, collective economics. That means the whole group is saying, okay, y'all know what to do. We all going at the same time, right? Why is Forbes the culture so popular? Because it's pulling all of these people together. Mm -hmm. It's bringing all of them together where they're all saying, hey, okay, why just one bag? Why don't me and you network and we get two bags, right? Eventually you get enough people together. The bag is not enough, right? And we're all, we all understand that the bag has holes in it because we didn't make the bag. The bag has holes in it. Because <laughs> we didn't like, make it. <laughs> we didn't, when I tell you, you are preaching right now. Like, <laughs> oh, like I don't know if you see it, but I'm, I, I feel God. <laughs> Um, <laughs> seriously, like it's, it's so much right now that we can go into. Um, and I guess my my final question to you: I wish we could, you know, talk about this for hours and hours on end. But I guess my final question is: Do you see us ever getting back to that place of operating from that that Greenwood type of perspective? You know, um, as 
as morbid as it sounds, it is not morbid. It's really not. African people have always understood that death is an illusion, right? Because really death leads to rebirth. That's why when somebody dies, when a black person dies, we don't say, oh, such and such died. We say they passed away because we understand that passing means transition. You transitioned into another phase, right? Right. There are some things within us that must die in order for us to be reborn. Right. We have to kill old narratives and old ways of thinking, because what we really have to examine, especially as we look at it in relationship to economics and community in the village. In order for us to really, truly build like I'll just use Forza Culture as an example again, because I've observed it a lot and really tried to unpack it for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Every individual is starting with self. When you come together, you're in that space. All these individuals are coming together for an event. When those individuals come together, now you have this collective network, that dynamic that is inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an inevitable experience that is now going to occur. What happens after that is the organizers who are motivating and encouraging and creating space because we don't get necessarily... We don't get safe spaces and we don't go into places where there are living examples or even past examples of greatness that we have yet to recreate. That gives you a real goal. Like it is really attainable because when you don't think that you've done something before, like me coming from Atlanta, thinking we we've never done this before Mm -hmm. for me to discover that we had. Oh, that was the game changer. It was like, whoa, you mean to tell me? that we can do this again, that we, if we really dig into how it was possible at a time when it seemed impossible, you mean to tell me that the sky really isn't the limit? (laughs) Like, it's mind blowing. Yes. Like we've already done things that were so remarkable that a whole state had to Mm -hmm. come against it to destroy it. Because what it would mean is the level of shame, because you've created a system that says these people are subhuman. Prior to that, they were three-fifths of human, even if it meant from a political perspective. Uh, After that, there was scientific, you know, so-called scientific theories and evidence that we were less than. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. In a system of thought, educational thought, we broke every barrier. We destroyed scientific journals. We destroyed ideologies and philosophies and principles that had been built about us that had that had been that had existed for a cycle of 400 plus years mm-hmm. in a matter of 15 years we did that because we were left alone if you put us in a space where we don't have to deal with any issues and we can we can literally you we create an incubator for us to uh detox right from mental terrorism yeah. From from all the no's, from all the rejections, from all the things that have basically stifled our ability to grow. And we find out, oh, my God, I, I've been in this wheelchair all this time and I can actually walk. It's that kind of discovery. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like something was just that somebody said, sit down and never let you get up. Mm-hmm. Then the moment you got up, you realized you could walk. So to to just to be. To be realistic or to, to, to bring it back to what you said and in a very uh, tangible way. It is absolutely possible because now we are more unapologetic than ever. We are we're we're gaining wisdom faster than and a faster rate than we have before, primarily because of the, the gap between elders and young people, which is unfortunate. But we have to find. We have to find the 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 light in it, right? And the light in it is it's forcing us to become more wise about how we interact, how we move forward. Mm-hmm. It's forcing us to look back into the past and say, what did our ancestors do? Because I don't have that narrative. 
is forcing us to read materials like in your case, it would be like, okay, I got to read Bobby Wright. I got to read Dr. DeGruy. I got to read uh, Francis Cress Wilson. I got to read all these different people, psychologists, and all these different people who had this, who were presenting information that was extraordinary, that wasn't necessarily for the world, but was for us, right? Because we don't go to school and we have all this research and study on white trauma. Like, what does their trauma look like? Right? Like, why... What, why, why do they respond to us the way they do? Mm-hmm. We always just say, why do they hate us so much? Right. We ask that question as if we're really oblivious to it. And in some ways we are because it's not our nature to respond in the same way. It's too unnatural for us, but we have never simply said, let's sit down for a moment and think about the people who are really sick because they're convincing us that we suffer from something that is really a misdiagnosis mm-hmm. right it's just it's not the same it's it sounds the same it almost looks the same but it's not quite the same right like why do we have this resilience you know you hear people say okay well you know you got black people fighting tripping over the police killing white black folks and but they don't ever do anything in their own community until we speak up yeah. and we tell our own story we had a panel. I'm going to close with this. We had a panel in Tulsa uh, that I was on, an uh, equity panel. And it, my particular panel was on police and for, law enforcement and um, bias. And that was mentioned by one of the city councilors. They asked, well, how do you expect to get empathy when people are, when we see in the news and things like that, black people killing black people? And um, all <laughs> oh, my God. I was ready for it, though. <laughs> and so I, he said, um, yeah, how do you how do you respond to that? That was my question. The question to me, mm. and I said it's quite simple. Have you ever seen white folks rally after white folks kill white folks and have a nonviolent parade or or, or walk through the city or walk through their community? Have you ever had them have a nonviolent rally? I've never seen the white community do that any time that a white person killed another white person. But when black people have killed black people, we literally march in the streets. We have we have uh, events. We have anti-violence protests. We have stop the violence marches through our communities. We do that without institutional funding, without institutional support. When black when a black child gets killed or dies in an elementary school in in a predominantly black school system, there aren't a barrage of counselors and people coming into those black schools. But mm-hmm. when a white kid gets killed, you got all these counselors, this on the news and everybody's, oh, we got to go to their aid. We have to help them. There's going to be some support mechanisms in place. You don't get that. We do that ourselves. We've always done that for ourselves. Right. right? And now that it's like, this is one of the reasons I was so honored to be on your show because I've watched some of your work. I've listened to some of your work and it was amazing because I didn't know that's what you did, you know, until I met you. And okay, I see your face on Instagram. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that's who you are. That's what you are. I said that's why the intent looks you had. I was like, she was very looks were very intense. And so <laughs> I, I said she that that machine was rolling because <laughs> I, I watch people, I pay attention. And so um, it's beautiful because the question you just asked is, how do we get back to that? Yeah, we get back to that by having people in our communities who can help us unpack some of the some of the delusion that we have about what is happening to us. Right. Like my big mantra is or my big expression of teaching is there are only two human emotions, love and fear. Everything we do is out of love or fear, because if you're not operating out of love, what are you operating out of? Well, I'm afraid that this might happen. Or I'm afraid this person might hurt me. Or I'm afraid I might lose my investment. I'm afraid. But what if you love everything you did? Then that becomes the protective measure. Like, I love it too much to lose it. I love it too much to sacrifice it. I love it too much to give it, uh, to to let my ego take, take control of the entire dynamic and it destroys everything. So people say, why do you do what you do, chief? Why do you continue to do this? You don't, you don't just lose it. Cause I would be mad as hell at white folks. And I said, first of all, there's this thing called usable past. If you can't use the past, don't bring it up 
because you have to be able to use it. Right. Even in it. So even if you're using it on a personal level, I got to bring up this past issue because I need to heal from it. I need to get past it. OK, that's usable past. But some people just just talk just to be talking. It's not even valuable to our ability. That's why I said I'm going to a meeting where you're just going to elevate my blood pressure and I leave more sick than I was when I when I came in. Like, what's the plan? Right. right. How can you alleviate some of my stress? <laughs> um, but we this idea of me loving what I do. I love our legacy. I love our people. I love people who who are doing the work to create an out for us. Like everybody is a freedom fighter in that regards. Like the work that you do, for example, it's a, you're, you're freeing us, you're liberating us from the psychological stuff that we have to deal with, that we can't get out of our heads and we can't move beyond our traumas or whatever things were happening that are happening in our lives. We, we don't have, we don't see a lot of advocates for us and people who are really going in and digging in and saying, I want, I want to know everything. Right. So I can really analyze this situation and I can take some of the pressure off of you and say, chief, guess what? You didn't riot. They rioted. That was a white riot. So don't don't be like, oh, I should have defended my community. I should have just ran or my because my wife and my kids would still be around and we wouldn't be separated. You know, <clears throat> those people love Greenwood. The fact that we can talk about it today is because. That that 250, those 250 children who sat in that room loved us enough to say it's time. It's time for us to give them what they need. There, there, there can't be a greater love than to sacrifice your own heart so that somebody else can take it and care for it and do what's necessary to improve the better, to improve your life in the best way possible. So Greenwood is just so much more than a historic story. It is principle, it is philosophy, it is spirituality, it's literature, it's hopefulness, it's it's elevation, it's edification, it's everything you can think about if you look into it and say, no, Greenwood was destroyed in that sense, in a tangible, in a material sense, but the spirit of Greenwood existed because people from all over the country came to Greenwood and built it. It wasn't like the people who were just local alone built yeah. Greenwood. There were people from Texas, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana who said, whoa, here's the promise. I'm going to the promised land. Is that what it and was? Gonna- Absolutely. You had people like Edwin McCabe who built Langston University. The founder of Langston, I mean, not Langston University, but the town of Langston, who declared that Oklahoma should be an all-Black state. He was telling Black folks in the South, come to the promised land. Anything can happen here. I promise you. The promised land is the idea of I'm going to make a promise today that my children and my grandchildren will live in a place where they will never have to deal with the things that we had to deal with. That's powerful. Yeah, truly. Yeah. It has me thinking like I'm, I'm trying to go back to the promised land. Like <laughs> <laughs> how can we create the promised land? Like, yeah, that's it. Yes. Chief, I cannot thank you enough for coming to the show and uh, sharing. It is my pleasure. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could just listen to you all day. Seriously. Give thanks. Very few people. I feel like I can listen to my dad all day because he knows a lot. (laughs) I feel like I can listen. Like, it's a couple of people, but I will say definitely one of them. I'm honored. I'm honored to be part of it. For sure. For sure. So can you tell us where the people can find you, how they can follow you and what things you have coming up? Yeah. So first thing first, uh, Patreon Center for Public Secrets. Um, It's a brick and mortar institution. Also has a digital library where we've taken a lot of the history that no author has written about. Like we are believers in evidence. Like I'm a clapback specialist. Right. Don't come for me. Right. Because I got receipts. And so um, (laughs) people who want to know what happened to Dick Rowland and Sarah Page, you know, what's what's happening on the local scene right now? Uh, go to the Center for Public Secrets. I just released my first documentary. It's called uh, Oaklawn, and it is basically the uncovering of the mass graves investigation that we that has that's in place right now. Mm. Uh, in 2021, there was a major cover up that the public did not know about, and the city tried to hide it. This is in 2021, so very few people know that in those mass graves that we dug, we found 
five children, a pregnant woman, and some other members of this community who were killed during the massacre. The moment we found the evidence, the city of Tulsa closed the investigation. Right. So in 2022, what you see now is fake news at its finest. Like, let's go back to the cemetery. We're going to dig. We're going to get DNA. But if you pay attention to the media language, the media language, they never say. They found more remains, but they never said they're victims of the massacre. They just Mm -hmm. said we found more more remains. Well, duh, you're going to find remains in a city cemetery. (laughs) You know, where else are you going to find remains? So this idea of them not identifying is just a smokescreen. So for for the public to think that we're doing the right thing really was just a cosmetic display for the 100th year centennial. And a lot of money was made. A lot of leveraging was done to create that dynamic. So you can see it all. Um, the the we took a three hour private meeting that the public did not know about that will ex- that exposed the entire city that you cannot find that video anywhere on the city's website. So fortunately enough, I had enough foresight to understand how the system works and said anything that shows up will disappear. So we ripped that video and we used ten minutes of a three hour video to create an entire documentary. So that's one way. Wow. Just yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. So I go to Patreon, Center for Public Secrets. Um, the second thing is um again the the real Black Wall Street tour, obviously. Uh family-owned business, descendant owned business. Uh we give a lot. It's different versions of the tour. You have the walking tour, then you have the full tour where you get to drive the entire district to hear about the entire story. Uh the third thing is National Geographic Project 2892. I've taken the real Black Wall Street tour and everything we talked about today, much of it, you'll be able to go through the entire storyline from the moment Black people came to Oklahoma. You'll get to see videos of Black folks with oil gushers behind them and all of this wealth that they attained. Because so people won't say, that's not true. That never happened. Didn't Black people didn't have oil in Oklahoma? Oh, yes, we did. You're going to get, you'll see videos of that. Um, you'll get to hear the voices of people who experienced this event. You'll get to hear music that was played in the Greenwood district. You'll get to hear about my own family's legacy and how we were enslaved by the Chickasaw nation because most people are unaware that the five civilized tribes owned African people as slaves and brought them to Oklahoma. Um, So it's a really powerful uh, timeline and you'll get some extra stuff, right? Like what we're talking about with the mass graves, you'll get all of that in the story. Um, You'll get at the ending, uh, it really ends in a really powerful way because I did a class for some children, eight and under, and uh, about Black Wall Street. And this particular day, I decided we won't talk about the massacre because I didn't want it to be suggestive or anything. I wanted to have a raw conversation. And I asked them, if you could build your own community, what would it look like? And they brought up all this magnificent stuff. Like if you could take this whole area in Greenwood and build anything you wanted to build. What would it look like? They gave me their ideas. Now, in the group, there's only one white person, a little white girl. And she sat right next to me the whole time. And I was like, this little girl must be reincarnated. She must know me from a past life or something. She will not <laughs> leave my side. Right. And so she's, she kept tapping on my leg, my left knee. And like she, she wanted this like she had to say something. So we started the conversation and I said, so let me ask you all a question. How do you think white people would feel if you built your own community? And the little white girl says. I think they would call the police. She's less than, I think she's like seven years old. It was shocking, right? So then one of the parents takes her phone out and starts recording the conversation. The other child says, the black girl across from her says, I think they would feel bad, sad. And she held her head down. And I was like, whoa, this is deep because what I'm observing is the black child feels bad for being successful as if it's going to cost somebody some somebody else something and a couple of the children said the same thing and one kid said i think they would just be jealous and wouldn't like it so you get to hear them have this conversation this raw conversation and then i go into commentary about what's happening and what i observe then the second phase of the video or audio, you get to hear them talk about a whole nother thing. And the white girl says one thing that justifies why 
you cannot have critical race theory. The little white girl says, who did this? Like who created this system? This is a seven-year-old, you know, and, and I'm just like, if we don't pay attention to the dialogue these children are having, because if her parents or her grandparents or whoever believes in the idea of critical race theory, they're going to make sure that question is never answered. Mm-hmm. Right. And she will have a narrative that's built on privilege and white supremacy. So that's the that's how the project concludes. It officially launches on the 18th, but you can view it now. Yeah. Where can you can go to just 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 type, Google uh, Nat Geo. 2892. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and if you can, can you email like all those links to me so I can? I sure will. Okay, awesome. So, so I can definitely the listeners to have access to all of those things. It has definitely been a pleasure hosting yeah. you here. Like, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a wealth of knowledge that you've been spreading. I really do appreciate you. I'm going to end here and say that Amos Wilson, a psychiatrist, talked about the idea of experiential amnesia. And he was saying how, like, when there's a group of people who had a traumatic past, people will try to get them to uh, forget their past. And what we know about that is that hinders us from being able to fully function in the future. So you're actually helping us to combat (laughs) that experiential amnesia. And we appreciate and love that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I appreciate your work. Continue, continue, continue. Thanks. You're always welcome back on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And to the listeners out there, make sure you guys tune in every single Wednesday to the podcast. And don't forget, you have the power to create the emotions that you want to experience. Catch y'all next week. Bye. (laughs) Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.